0: Invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter twelve. Hebrews chapter twelve. As we're continuing this morning, looking at this letter of encouragement to a, a struggling, suffering a church. They are suffering persecution, and um, it's hard. And some of them are being tempted to turn away. And so this is a, a letter of encouragement, and we really get to um, the, the the nub of the encouragement, uh, or at least a. a a particularly important part of it as he gives us a theology of suffering in our text this morning. So Hebrews chapter 12, I'm gonna begin reading at verse one and we're gonna read through uh, verse 11. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's ask the Lord to bless His Word. With God in heaven, to the hills we lift our eyes, winds shall help for, for me arise. From the Lord shall come mine aid, he the who whom heaven and earth has made. And Lord, you give your help through your word as you teach us and instruct us. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would do that just now. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive it, that we may be trained by your word, by your love. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been in my uh, office recently, you, uh, if you can get past the mess, you'll notice that I have a few books. And um, I love my books. I um, I can't say that I've read all of them. Uh, I'm looking forward someday to reading all of them. Um, but, um, but I have a special regard for a certain set of books, set, books that deal with a particular topic. I love my commentaries, I, I enjoy my systematic theologies and all the books that deal with a, a wide a range of topics, biblical topics about the Christian life or, or biblical truth. But there's, there are particular books that I reverence in a sense. And those are the books on suffering. Uh, Books like When God Weeps by Johnny Erickson Tata, who uh, has spent all of her life since she was 16 years old in a wheelchair. Uh, Books like uh, The View from a Hearse by Joseph Bailey, who buried three sons. Or Holding On to Hope by Nancy Guthrie, who lost two children. Uh, My God is True by Paul Wolfe, who nearly lost his life uh, to cancer shortly after um, or while he was in seminary. And there's reasons um, why I love those books. One of the reasons is that I, I have not personally suffered uh, a great deal, and I uh, can easily wonder how I would uh, endure a great trial. And I'm personally comforted by these stories of, uh, of God's people, when they go through the waters, exactly as we read in Scripture, that God is with them. They are not forsaken. God sustains them. Uh, God is faithful to His Word. He's true. He's true. Uh, and 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 I also uh, I reverence these books because I, I, I think that God has a special delight and joy in the occasions of um, His people suffering in faith. I think it, that really maybe nothing glorifies God as God more than His children uh, enduring suffering, willing to acknowledge that that suffering is not an accident. It's not there by random chance, but comes to them from the very hand of God, and yet they're willing to, to submit to that hand in faith and rely on that hand that is bringing the wound as the hand that will also bring the healing. There's almost nothing in the world that I can think of that more magnifies God as God and, and magnifies uh, the truth of his, of his love and His care. Now, of course... Those aren't just things we read about in books. Those are things that we experience right here in the family of God, lived out repeatedly. There's so many stories here this morning of grief, of people who've lost loved ones, parents, spouses, children, friends, to death. Those who are grieving children who are not walking with the Lord. Those who are living with debilitating diseases and chronic pain and special needs. Those who are lonely as singles or lonely in their marriage. Uh, the suffering just in this room is an immense thing and it's a sacred thing. And so there's a, there's a certain reverence that I feel when I come to a text like this because it'd be very easy to just sort of tritely uh, trot through a biblical truth about suffering without acknowledging the reality of that um, so many of us are feeling and going through right now. And also, there's, a, there's a, a weight I feel this morning because I, as, as an American church, I think we could acknowledge that, that a theology of suffering is, is not one of our strengths. I was reading just recently Rod Dreher, and I think he said exactly right. He says, the American, the American church has been built for success, not for suffering. I think that's true. I think there are many Christians around the world who would look at the American church and, and nod their heads. And uh, the reason that matters, you see, is because real suffering does come, and, uh, and real suffering may even come in the form that we find here in Hebrews chapter 12, in the form of persecution as we live in a culture that is increasingly hostile, uh, openly so, to the Christian faith, and that should not surprise us. Jesus says, they hated me, they're going to, uh, they're going to hate you. The thing that ought to concern us is not that persecution is a possibility. The thing that ought to concern us is what happens when that persecution or, or, uh, or hostility of some sort uh, begins to take place. When when we actually ex- uh, would experience the loss of a job because of our faith or because of our stand on uh, um, you know, I think the church is going to be required to celebrate homosexuality and to celebrate tra- transgenderism and to celebrate whatever it is that the culture um, is, is, um, is advocating now in their uh, defiance of God. And, and the church will be required to, to celebrate those things with them. The early church was simply asked to acknowledge um, that the, the gods that, that all the citizens, all the, the society, the culture of the day acknowledge. Just acknowledge them. You don't need to deny your God, just acknowledge He's one of many. Well, we should be thinking about those things, because the, uh, in the parable of the sower, if you remember Mark chapter 4, Jesus says that, the, that there is seed that's, stone, that's uh, sown among rocky ground, and, and that seed springs up. People come to faith, and they believe it, and there's joy, but Jesus says then when trouble or persecution comes on account of the Word, immediately they fall away. And one of my great fears for the American church is that that would happen. And, um, and now's the time for us to, you see, to, to get that theology of suffering. Now's the time for us to be trained according to the Word of God. What exactly is taking place when we uh, are in times of trial, when we're suffering? Uh, what are the things that we need to remember, the things that we're likely to forget? Just like the early church here, uh, they have forgotten some things. And the writer says, have you forgotten what, what's, what's happening here? Have you, have you forgotten the, the, the context, the bigger picture? We need a robust theology of suffering because we and, and our children, grandchildren, we're going to experience suffering, all of us, in one way or another and possibly corporately. Uh, now, one of the things that strikes me as, as the, the writer here is addressing these people who are in hard straits. They've, many of them have already lost their homes They've lost their families, as you know. They've lost their place in the world. They're, they're, they're despised by people. Isn't it awful to be hated? If you maybe have a coworker that you just don't get along with, that's one thing. But what if you have a coworker who truly hates you, who despises you? It's, it's, a, it's an awful thing to be hated, and Jesus says, of course, that's, that's what's happening, and that's what's happening here in Hebrews 12, and they're experiencing the effects of that hatred, that, that opposition, and it, it, it just strikes me that the writer does not do what many of us, and, and I myself, would be tempted to do, which is to say, you poor people, I'm, I'm so sorry this is, this is happening to you. Uh, we will pray that your suffering will soon end. Now, that's not inappropriate to say. We need to, to bear each other's burdens and weep with one another. And this, this writer clearly cares for these people. He knows them and he loves them, but, but nowhere in the letter does he say our sympathies are with you or uh, we're praying that the persecution will stop. He doesn't pray that. He doesn't say that. Why? Well, because he knows the persecution may well not stop. The trial might continue, but you see, what he he wants to do is he wants to give them joy and hope and peace in believing as they understand the the truth of their circumstance, the the context in which they live. He wants them to, to, in their suffering, see things again correctly, to see specifically the person of Jesus Christ in his suffering for them and to see specifically the loving discipline of their heavenly father. That these are two things that actually help when we're in times of trial or grief. The truth about Jesus Christ and the loving discipline of the father. And so the, those, those are the two things we're going to look at together this morning from God's word. First, uh, notice he calls them to consider him. Consider Jesus. This is where we're to look. Um, And he says in verse four, this interesting thing, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now that might strike you as not that encouraging because it it could sound like he's saying, stop whining. Um, You have not suffered as much as Jesus has, or you've not resisted sin yet to the point where, where Jesus has. Now that's, of course, that's true, but I don't think he's. He, I don't think he's trying to shame them. He's, he's not just saying, you know, s- stop complaining. He wants them to see Jesus. Notice he's just said this: "Looking unto Jesus," verse two, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's what he's been about throughout the letter. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And and the word here, "consider him." The Greek word here uh, means to think or reason with thoroughness and completeness to think it out, to work it out. Reason it through. So that when you're, when you're looking at Jesus, you're, you're seeing specific things and you're connecting specific dots. And you see, what he, what he wants us to see is the suffering of Christ. Consider him who, the, the very Son of God, who made this world, consider him, who endured such hostility from sinners. So the very Son of God comes into this, his own world and his own receive him not. They, they hate him, they despise him, they reject him, they beat him, they ultimately kill him. Um, and this all happens at the hands of sinners, rebels. So it's, it's the most unjust act in the history of the world, where the perfect righteous one is hated and despised and killed by sinners. Now, again, the writer is, is is he says this because he thinks there's comfort here. He says, consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Somehow, considering and thinking through the suffering of Jesus, the Son of God, is, is meant to help us. Somehow this is helpful. How is it that this is helpful? Let me just give you two things I'm sure we can think of more. In, on one hand, it's, it's helpful because it reminds us that suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. This is a message you find throughout the New Testament. Uh, And the writer here reminds us back in chapter 5, verse 8, that Jesus himself suffered and learned obedience through what he suffered. That suffering was the path of discipleship for Jesus. And then Jesus promised that uh, if if this is true for him, it's also going to be true for those who follow him. In Matthew 10, 24, Jesus told his disciples, a disciple is not above the teacher. A servant's not above his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Suffering is normal Christianity. The call to follow Christ is a call to, to suffer if if you remember the names that we studied in hebrews chapter 11 all these these names of of noah and moses and abraham and jacob and, and 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 samson and gideon all the rest every story is a story that's saturated with suffering with heartache and hardship and it's true of every one of god's saints And so Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange, it's it's normal. Paul and Barnabas, remember Barnabas, the encourager, I I think very likely the, the author of this text, Paul and Barnabas, we're told in Acts 14, are going through the churches encouraging them, we're told, telling them we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now there's there's a a, a knee jerk reaction maybe inside of you somewhere that says, "Oh, that's not encouraging." Well, it could be. It could be at least to ground you that what you're uh, what you're experiencing is not outside of what's normal. That 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 this is unexpected. That this is really what the path looks like. But but the real encouragement comes when we when we think through why is Jesus suffering. Why is Jesus suffering? Notice the writer goes to the issue of sin, which is interesting because the, the Hebrew, the, the, the early church here, these, these people who are suffering, are, are, they're being persecuted because of Christ's sake. He doesn't, he's not saying specifically that they've done something wrong and now God is punishing them. That's not the message of Hebrews, of the book of Hebrews. But he goes to the issue of sin here because, you see, in your, struggle, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, all these personal pronouns. Why does he say that? What does he want us to see? Well, obviously, he wants us to see Jesus shedding his blood. And so there's a, there's a likeness. We suffer with Christ as we follow Christ, but then there's a discontinuity something that's, that's different. He wants us to see Jesus shedding his blood as he resists sin. He wants you to see and consider Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane as he's on, on the ground. Think of this, the Son of God gripping the soil and, and sweating drops of blood and, and, and asking his Father, Father, please, please, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The Son of God in the garden of Gethsemane. He he wants us to consider and think about Jesus on the cross with with the blood coming down his face from the thorns and blood dripping from the hands and the feet and the blood pouring from the wound in his side. The the writer wants us to see a, a bloody Christ, to consider him, to think this out carefully. Why? Why is Jesus the Son of God, eternally equal with the Father? Why is Jesus suffering like this? And, and the answer, you see, is because he is in this battle with sin. Well, whose sin? Your sin. He doesn't have any of his own. And my sin... And he's in this, this war with the powers of sin and death and hell. He's he's resisting, you see, the power of sin that holds you and me in eternal bondage, under condemnation, doomed to an eternity without God. That's what he's doing. And so he's offering his body and pouring out his blood to accomplish something, to pay our penalty, bearing our guilt, so that you actually can be forgiven and freed. He's the champion of our faith, the writer has just said, the one who, who leads us into victory. Victory. And the reason you see the writer holds that up is because we never understand our suffering as Christians correctly without seeing them in the context then of Christ's suffering. His suffering to pay the penalty for sin, his suffering to remove the condemnation due to us because of sin, means something for our suffering. Specifically, it means that our suffering is not payment. It's not satisfying a penalty. And we need to know that because the devil will tell us that's exactly what's going on, that the the Father is is, is, uh, extracting payment from us for wrongs that we have done. Or our guilty conscience will tell us that. Or our pride will suggest that. And we're willing to endure because in doing so, we're paying off the debts. Well, It's not true. God the Father will never dishonor the sacrifice of His Son by asking those or requiring those who've trusted in Him to pay in the slightest degree for what Christ has already paid for. It's one of the the great sins that we commit is, is to dishonor the sacrifice of Christ by trying to pay what only He can pay. Now, we we just got to receive this again. This maybe is, is not a new thought to you, but it's a thought that we easily forget. And some of you this morning have allowed yourself to believe that your current trial is God punishing you for your sin. You look at your hard marriage and you believe that God is maybe punishing you for having sex before marriage or getting married for the wrong reason. God is making you pay. No, he's he's not making you pay, friend. Jesus paid. Jesus paid. You never can, you never will. Your suffering is not God making you pay. But, many Christians will argue this way, they'll reason this way, but surely there are consequences to sin. And so I'm just suffering the consequences of my poor decisions and sinful actions. If I... If I hadn't lost my temper, I, I, I wouldn't be unemployed. If I hadn't gotten pregnant, I wouldn't be married to this person. If I wasn't addicted to alcohol, I wouldn't have made those decisions. If I hadn't been addicted to work, I, I, I would still have my family. I wouldn't be in this mess. But I, I did those things, and so here I am. I'm suffering the consequences. Uh, I, I just have to accept that these are the consequences for what I've done. But friends, that is karma. That's not Christianity. That's karma. We don't believe in karma. Your life isn't in your hand, you see, to that degree. And that speech any pagan could make. You understand that? Any pagan could say, well, these are just the consequences of my actions. You realize, you see, that Christians, God's children, do not live in consequences. God's children live in providences all the time. We do not live in the consequences of past failures. We live in the providences of Christ's accomplishment and our Father's purposes all the time. All the time. And that's why the writer goes then to things to remember in verses 5 and following. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Taken from Proverbs chapter 3. You see, to be a, a child of God, to, to be a Christian, is to be, is to be adopted into the family of God. And we noted a few weeks ago when we studied this doctrine, the doctrine of adoption, that the doctrine of adoption is unique in the sense that it's not really necessary in order for salvation to happen. Every other event of, of the uh, order of salvation, of God working out His salvation, Uh, His election is necessary. We never would have come if God hadn't chosen us. His calling is necessary. We wouldn't come if he hadn't called us. His regenerating power is necessary. We wouldn't have a new heart without God giving us a new heart. Every step, justification, sanctification, it's all necessary except this one, adoption. Why, Why is adoption part of salvation? Because God wants to communicate his love to you. And that his purpose in saving you was not simply to get you out of hell. His purpose in saving you was not simply to get you forgiven. His purpose in saving you was to make you a member of his family where he pours out all of his love and grace and favor to you as his child, his dearly loved son or daughter. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. And the writer is saying, have you forgotten that most essential point? Have you you forgotten who you are as a child of God, and that God then is your heavenly Father? Because, you see, one of the things we know about loving fathers is they discipline their children. Now, discipline here does not always mean spanking, okay? Discipline is training, It's teaching, it's guiding, and sometimes it involves something that hurts. The Greek here is strong. It says the father disciplines and chastises. The Greek can be translated flogs and scourges. It's strong. In other words, it hurts. But the writer says this is what loving fathers do to train they children. This is a necessary part of parenting and a necessary part of being a child, and it's an encouraging part of, a trial, of, of, of being a child. So he wants them to understand, you see, that, tri- that, that their suffering then is a mark of sonship. Their suffering is, 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 is an evidence that God, their Father, is lovingly training them. Trials are not just consequences, tragedies are not just the result of living in a fallen world. All things come by the hand of our Heavenly Father. That's what we profess in the Heidelberg Catechism, if uh, maybe some of you um, grew up with that. Heidelberg Catechism, question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? I'm going to summarize it. It, It's worth reading on your own. But the the answer is, God's providence is is His almighty and ever-present power. It's always there. Whereby, as with His own hand, He upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that, leaf, blade, rain, drought, all that, All things come to us not by chance nor by, little insertion here, mere consequence, but by his fatherly hand. All things. By his fatherly hand. Even the suffering that we experience occurs not because of circumstance or consequence or chance, it, it occurs by the Father the hand of God. Even the suffering with that, that comes to us because of our own sin and stupidity comes to us through the Father's hand. Isn't that amazing? The suffering you experience because of your sin and stupidity is not God just saying you made your bed lay in it. It's God as a heavenly Father purposefully training us, teaching us, guiding us, leading us. It's a concept that we have, to, we have to grasp and embrace and to love. I think it's hard for American Christians to think, that, to, to think of God as bringing pain into their life. Most of us would assign, or we have a tendency as Americans to assign that to something else. But the text is saying that God himself is doing this. That, that God the Father is bringing the discipline. And there's encouragement in that. See, it, it it tells us that we belong, that we're a part of what God is doing. Imagine the writer in verse 8 just says, if, if, you're not, if you're never disciplined, you're an illegitimate child, verse 8. If you're left without discipline, in which we've all participated, you're an illegitimate child. You're not a son. Imagine, imagine being in a home where there were a number of children, and, and all the children were lovingly disciplined except you. You you just were never, you were never rebuked. You were never admonished. You were, you, were, you were never disciplined, ever, no matter what you did, no matter how much you, you fought and screamed and, and disobeyed. Nothing happened. You were ignored. You, your parents would just, just either just turn their face away. Would you feel loved? One of the kids uh, this past week was just telling us that um, they were explaining to their child just how much they loved them. One of the little grandkids said, uh, you love us so much that you'll even give us spankings? With a big smile on his face. Uh, That's absolutely true. I love you so much. God will give us spankings. Thomas Brooks says this, there cannot be a greater evidence of God's hatred and wrath than his refusing to correct men for their sinful courses and vanities. Where God refuses to correct, there God resolves to destroy. There is no man so near the flames, so near hell, as he whom God will not so much as spend a rod upon. Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. That's from the mouth of Jesus. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now that's that's good news that when we suffer as a Christian, God does not willingly bring affliction to the children of men. That's what the scripture says. But he does it because he loves his children. And and the text wants us to be encouraged that God has not forgotten us. Uh, Our fathers disciplined us for a short time as as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. He disciplines us so that we can live That's what's at stake here. If God does not discipline you, you will die. If he doesn't train you, if he doesn't lead you and guide you and and nurture you in holiness, it is not possible to be saved, right? We need to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is is necessary. And and, and God's desire then is that we may share in that. If If we would have a sense of the beauty and the preciousness, the value of holiness... Holiness is, is a mind, heart, body, soul, devotion to God, a, a love for God. One holy passion filling all my frame. That, that's holiness. And God, you see, his is, is purpose again in saving us is both to robe us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and to mark us with the implanted character of God himself so that it's evident that God has done a work That only God can do. It's evident that we are His children as the fruit of the Spirit is is being manifested. Jesus says in John 15, verse 18, This is uh, to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, thus proving to be my disciples. Holiness matters, it matters immensely. And God's saints have testified throughout all the ages that nothing is more effective in producing holiness than suffering. Nothing is more effective in in beating down pride, in shattering self-reliance, in exposing idols, and teaching us to live upon him who is invisible, to live upon God. Nothing is as effective in that training as, as trial. Divinely ordained suffering. Came across a letter by an old saint, William Tip Taft, 1803, 1864, writing a letter to a friend, my dear brother. He was very sick. He says, I find this sickness profitable to my soul. It has, I trust, meekened and humbled my spirit, and I've been brought down to lie passive in the Lord's hands. I feel this sickness to be the rod I needed. If we escaped such trials, we would wander farther from God after idols and the vain delights of our wicked hearts. And so many of you would say exactly the same. It was good for me to have been afflicted. It was was good. God God taught me good things there. But it's painful. It's painful. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. There's nothing in this teaching. I think this is where we maybe sometimes miss it. But... It's, it's important that we acknowledge the pain of the, of the trial. There's nothing in this text that is an invitation. There's nothing in this truth that's an invitation to think lightly, to simply say tritely, Well, God is doing something good. As though it doesn't hurt, it hurts. Suffering is suffering. It was for Jesus, it is for his children. Losing a loved one to death is desperately painful. Having a child walk in disobedience is heartbreaking. A loveless marriage is a long, lonely, painful road. Chronic pain and physical weakness sap the soul. Never belittle the truth of the pain. God the Father doesn't. The tears of His children are precious to him. Psalm 56, 8, you have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Let's never use this truth of God's good purposes in suffering to deny or in any way diminish the truth of the pain. Scripture does not do that. It's painful. And it's good for us to encourage each other and to weep with each other and to walk with each other in the truth of the pain. But there's a promise attached to the pain. The promise is that this discipline, loving discipline of God, yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who've been trained by it. And so we can encourage each other, not just as we comfort one another in the pain, but, but encourage each other that God really is leading. There is, there is a fruit here, a good fruit And God with perfect wisdom and infinite love is leading you through your circumstance and your trial and your heartache because he is hungry for your experience of the glory of sharing in his holiness and and, and knowing the eternal peace and honor of bearing the fruit of righteousness. God is about immense things in your suffering, in your trial. John Piper says this is not a feel-good chapter about how to make the best of your troubles or even about how God makes the best of your troubles. It is a massive statement about the gracious sovereignty of God over the evil that befalls his people. And the question is, will you believe it? Will you accept the mystery of God's providence in the pain of your life and be trained by it? Will you accept it? the mystery of God's providence in your life and be trained by it or will you kick against this word and demand in the season of suffering that God give a better account of himself than he does here you see Jesus calls us to believe to believe his word to submit to our father's hand because it's the hand that brought the son to a cross for you to bear your guilt so that you never will. To pay the penalty so you don't have to. To change all the circumstances of your life from condemnation to circumstances of grace, even though it hurts. And so friends, I want to just leave you with this. what? Consider then three things. First, just consider your life. Consider your circumstances. Uh, consider the things that you're anxious about. Consider the things that you fear. And bring it all under this context into this truth the two realities of a savior who suffered for you and a father who loves you. And and, and let that rebuke and admonish your fear and, 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 and bring peace where there's anxiety. Your life is not coming to you by chance. It's not coming to you by consequence. It's coming to you by divinely purposed providence, the same providence that brought Jesus Christ to a cross. Secondly, consider your current status. Are you a child of God? You see, these blessings are for God's children. Everything doesn't work out for good for whomever. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Are you a child of God? Have you submitted yourself in faith to Jesus Christ, confessing your sin and trusting in what he alone can accomplish? If you've not done that, then my invitation to you is to do it today. What would keep you from these blessings? What would would keep you from wanting to become a part of the family of God? And to receive the blessings that come from that. But most importantly, and finally, consider Him, friends. In the the reality of your life, you don't need to be in great trial right now to be missing Jesus. Jesus. Consider Jesus in the reality of your life right now the reality of your relationships as they are think it through think thoroughly about who He is and why He came and what he accomplished and where he is at the right hand of God and why all of this should matter to you think about think about how you do your day think about how you just how you're living your life what's going on in your mind what, what your desires are your passions. Think about um, the reality of your sin. Think about all of it considering Jesus, who he is and why he came and what he accomplished and where he is and the fact that he's coming again. Consider him, friends. That's how Christians walk. That's how we suffer to the glory of God. That's how we gain that city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. Amen. Oh God in heaven, we are we're your people by grace and grace alone. Lord, there are so many stories here that could be told about your faithfulness in trial and some of those stories are being written even today. As your people go through the valley of the shadow of death, as they walk in lonely places, grieving places, as they experience pain, Father, I... I pray that your word today would be an encouragement as we receive the circumstances of our life, not as consequences or just simply circumstances, but as as fatherly providences. God at work for an eternal good. And Lord, in, in believing that, I pray we'd find comfort and peace. And for those, Lord, who have not yet bowed their knee to Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that they would have a hunger to know Jesus this way, and to have a father like this, who loves so thoroughly and deeply, who's about such glorious good things. And Father, may this be the day where uh, they come to life. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's your word that sustains and nourishes us. I pray, Lord, that um, this nourishment would go deep and bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.